being in nature allows us to understand that we are nature. And if we understand we are nature, then we might even act as such. And that would be, you know, I think one of the most important ideas to bring into the table. As voices do professor. Teachers' voices. Hello and welcome to Teachers' Voices, the podcast made from the stories of teachers from around the world, talking in their own words. Teachers' Voices is produced in partnership with Bold, the digital platform of learning and development. I am your host, Nina Alonso. I'm an educational researcher, and for the past 10 years, I have been devoted to improving equal access to education. Through my research, I meet teachers and educationalists with a huge range of experience, and they share with me their inspiring stories and advice. If you're interested in how children learn and develop, please subscribe. This episode is about nature and education, about how to reconnect with nature and make it more central in children's learning and development. Today we have four great guests. First, we will hear from Luis Alberto Camargo, a social entrepreneur specialized in nature-based education. Luis has experienced looking for significant changes in educational systems at global level. We will also hear from Joaquin Leguía, the founder of the Tini Methodology, an approach used with children both in and out of school, highlighting the role of nature as a teacher. Later, we will hear from Jeff Barrett and Sal Gordon, who are leading two special schools, totally immersed in very rich but different natural environments, the Canadian forests and the jungles of Bali. Let's first welcome Luis Alberto. Luis is an adventurer with extensive wilderness guide training and experience leading outdoors activities. He founded the non-profit organization for environmental education and protection to advance nature-based and generative education. Luis welcomes me in Bogota. I first ask him what role nature plays in children's well-being. Oh, that is a huge question. Um, it's so huge that if we start thinking that we are nature, nature plays the biggest role. Nature is actually the, the most important learning environment. Uh, additionally, nature is the teacher. And third, nature is knowledge. If we look at, you know, 4.8 billion years of the earth, 3.8 billion years of life on the planet, you know, that's the oldest learning huge organism we have. I asked Luis if being in nature contributes to children's learning and development beyond well-being. Definitely well-being has been proven to be improved, both mental well-being, physical, you know, all dimensions of well-being is, is affected by nature positively. But beyond well-being, nature, like I said, you know, is really the space where, where we learn that we are interconnected and interdependent. I also asked Luis if there has been much scientific research in this area. Okay, scientific research into nature education is something that has increased in the last decade. And actually, it comes from Richard Louvre, who's a, an author and journalist and who wrote a book called The Last Child in the Woods. And this book actually was the story of his interviews with children and, and parents. And after doing all these interviews, he realized that there were these trends. And the trends were showing that the nature disconnect and the lack of nature contact in children's development 
you know, was really associated to many dimensions of physical and mental and emotional well-being were being affected by this disconnect. And after he published his book in 2005, there was a new interest in researching and giving a little more, more foundations to these discoveries. He t coined all these things, nature deficit disorder, as a way of putting them together. So after 2005, there was an increase in research. And I think what research really tells us is that it confirms those findings. Research has also shown how nature affects learning. So they've done studies where they're looking at the way students react and respond if they're in classrooms that are facing green spaces, for example. And they're realizing that even the small contact that's through a window into a green space changes the way children are learning in those classrooms. So studies are, are starting to really reaffirm the importance of nature coming into uh, education so much that during the last year we have been working in a global cohort of practitioners, researchers, and, uh, and academics uh, within a concept that is called the Global Greening School Grounds Alliance. And we actually have brought in a lot of the information associated to research, but creating an action plan that will be launched uh, this month to the world so we can actually start increasing the greenness of education. So both greening school grounds, but also greening classrooms and increasing access to outdoor education due to the potential it has to improve education and what research has been finding. Part of this is also creating more research opportunities to confirm empirical evidence because some of the research has been in very small groups of stu students. So we need to improve the quality of data and the quality of research to really confirm and maybe have more leverage to bring policymakers and, and school authorities in different places of the world to really take note and start including nature as their biggest ally in education. I asked Luis if he could tell us a little about his work in this area. Part of my, my work has really been focused on developing ways and training teachers, creating programs for students, and bringing this subject into a global conversation. So I've been working both with the Regenerative Communities Network and the Regenerative Movement to understand the education for regeneration and the role nature-based education has in this process and in generating neuroplasticity that is associated to living systems in early childhood and how that then has to be led through primary and secondary education to understand living systems from a different perspective in a different way. And also bringing the conversation through the International Union for Conservation of Nature into the global scenario and understanding that we need to love nature, we need to connect deeply in order to start changing the way we act. So we've created, through the IUCN, a platform that's called Nature for All. And Nature for All has resources for teachers, for a lot of people that want to engage in learning, but it's focused on creating connections and bridges that allow us to fall back in love with nature. But changing the education system, ultimately, we've realized that it, it has to do with changing 
how teachers and how educators relate and understand their relations. And once they understand that and they connect to nature, they also can use a lot of tools that we're creating so they can share and facilitate nature learning experiences that allow children to blossom in a different way into what I'm calling nature-based education from a relational approach where we're really understanding that the human nature relation ends up becoming the leverage and the trampoline to improve our relations to ourselves, to others, and obviously to nature. Recent sites make it clear that only holistic approaches can have the power to truly transform education, recognizing that we are nature and that all is interconnected. Luis talks about the role of nature in inspiring compassion in children. Okay, I think to speak of compassion, we have to bring a term that was coined by Zen master Thich Nhat Nan. In meditation, he said that one of the big roles of spiritual development and, and consciousness awakening has to be with either introspecting or outrospecting to the point where you realize your interbeing. And I think that word is really important because the interbeing is, is the moment where you realize you are nature. Nature is you. You know, we might be as bad as we are to living systems, but living systems are still giving us food, uh, refuge, and everything else. So there's, there's many connections. And also, as children start relating to especially animate beings in nature, so insects and birds and mammals, you know, there's something else that comes up. is the capacity to reflect yourself in other life forms. And this is really important. So creating this empathic ability is a key part of creating compassion because it's recognizing the intrinsic value of life that's outside of you and the intrinsic value of life that is inside of you. Luis shares ideas for helping children experience the positive effects of nature, even if the school is near little or no nature. I think teachers need to break out of the limitations of our infrastructure. So part of what I've discovered is that nature has such power that direct contact with nature is fundamental, but vicarious contact and, and facilitated contact with nature is incredibly powerful. So for example, bringing soundscapes of nature into the classroom and facilitating visualizations uh, that allow kids with their eyes closed to hear the sounds of nature and try to understand, visualize, imagine, you know, the conversations, imagine the dynamics that, that are happening outside. And then bringing those dynamics into the classroom, into drawings, into poems, into other forms of creative expression that allow to create conversations of how we listen to what we hear and how we imagine. So, It's really interesting to understand that even if we don't have access to natural spaces, which would be really, you know, the ideal, we need to bring these images and these feelings that nature elicit into the classroom. So bringing nature into the classroom is fundamental. Both it might be herbs, plants, and that type of thing, but also images that are inspiring. And obviously going outside and starting to create small gardens in any school and give those gardens emotional qualities and 
let's say we've worked with a methodology from Peru that's called uh, Tierra de los Niños, so Land of Children. And we've ad adapted it a little bit, but, you know, children can, with pot plants, create the corner of peace or the, calm, the corner of, of calmness and start generating spaces that bring well-being, significance, and re relational power into their learning environment, even though they don't have access to wilderness or, or to really wide open spaces. We will hear more from Luis at the end of this episode, but I was curious to know more about the methodology called Land of Children that Luis mentioned. Its short name is Trini, and it highlights how nature can promote healthy relationships with others and the earth. I did a bit of research and I was impressed by how deep and holistic the approach seemed, so I contacted the founder. Joaquin Leguía answered my call quickly from Costa Rica, where he has moved with his family to create a global center for Mother Earth as a teacher. All the guests in this episode tell me that the current engagements in nature-based learning are rooted in their own personal journeys. Luis was an explorer and an outdoor trainer before he turned into education. Jeff, who we will hear from later, is also an adventurer who has traveled all the continents and been on Arctic explorations and such experiences, traveling and sailing, shaped his work in the Green School in Bali, where he is now the principal. Joaquin tells us how his experience with nature during his childhood deeply shaped his future and his current activism. Yeah, when, when I was a little boy, I was uh, around four years of age, my parents got divorced and uh, we moved to my grandma's house. And in my grandma's house, there was uh, like an old orchard separated by a big wall from the main house. And then uh, I saw in my, in my world, I was like, oh my God, this is a jungle and I am Tarzan. And I, went, I never came out of that place emotionally. That place quickly became a refuge, an emotional refuge for me. And there, but uh, I always felt security. I, I felt freedom. My grandpa, uh, my grandfather, he was president of Peru from 1908 till 1912 and from 1919 till 1930. And he died when my dad was six months of age. But since then, you know, in my family, it, there was a lot of pressure of me to become president or become a, a Wall Street man or, or, or something like that or a banker or all okay with that. But... It was not really me. In that place, I, I, I always felt free to, to be who I really was and do what I wanted to do. I always say that that place is where I met Mother Earth and she met me. She told me that not only exists what, you, what we see, but also exists what we feel. And it's up to us to make that tangible. We can do it. And uh, she told me, too, that whatever we do to others, we do to ourselves. I remember I had my favorite tree, and, and I don't know why I, I was upset, and I kicked it. And, of course, who got hurt was me. So that was a quick, quick lesson. Later, I found out with a, a lot of, of most indigenous cultures that mothers, that nature was a she, it wasn't an it, and that she contained me and gave me so much and developed in me, together with my brother, what I call active empathy for life, which is the ability to feel and do for yourself, for others, and, and for nature. Years later, Joaquin created ANIA, Association for Children and Their Environment, with the mission to enable new generations to grow with active empathy for life by bringing them close to nature, 
developing their relationship with Mother Earth and empowering them as agents of change. In Anya, an interesting education methodology was created, focused on generating well-being for themselves, for others, and for nature. So we created a methodology called TINI, which is in, in Tierra de Niñas, Niños y Jóvenes, which, which in English is Children's Lands. And uh, it consists of an area, a place given to them. It could be in the house, in the school, in the, in the, in the neighborhood, community, now natural protected areas too, where they are given this little place. It can be a little place from three plant pots or it can be like 20 hectares, like today exists in some places. Um, and they, there they nurture life and biodiversity with, with, with love and joy. And, and, and with Mother Earth as, as, a, as their main guide and ally, they generate well-being for themselves, for others, and for nature. Joaquin explains that at the core of the Tini methodology and lands lies the interconnection of selves, others, and nature. He pictures this as three concentric circles that need to be present in all actions of children within their own Tinis. They generate, they do things that are good for them, meaning their body, their mind, their emotions, and their spirit, which is the center. Then the, the next circle is those who you love, those who you see, and those who you don't see. And among those who you don't see, you, you, you include your ancestors, and you include unborn, who will be born but have not been born yet. And then comes a bigger circle, which is, which is nature, which includes air, water, soil, and minerals, plants, animals, and fungi. So the kids know whatever they do in that piece of land that has been given to them, ideally, they do things for all these elements that I mentioned for them, for others, and for nature. And then they develop that sense of, of interdependence, of connectivity, and that we are all one. And whenever you do something for others, you get better. So that, that's the whole concept. And uh, so we started applying these children's lands in forests, in, in the rainforest. We started with a community and then it went to other ecosystems, it went to homes, and it started developing, uh, being implemented in schools. Joaquin explains that his organization has worked with ministries in different countries to officially recognize the role of nature as a teacher. This official recognition plays an important role in the Chini methodology and I ask him to explain what it takes at the school level to receive this official recognition. What it does in schools is two things. One is include Mother Earth as a, as a teacher officially. And how do we do that? Is the, the, the teacher or the director, the headmaster of the school signs a document, like when you hire someone, the same document, but you're not hiring Mother Earth, but you're bringing her officially as a teacher in the school. That's number one. Number two, you, you have an image of her, personification of, of mother, according to the local culture. And she, it's a beautiful picture that kids love. And, and she's put in a wall next to all the other teachers. So kids know that it's a she, it's not an it. Then the headmaster makes a speech or, or she makes a speech to all the uh, education community saying, why are we bringing mothers as a teacher? And the pitch is, who better than life herself to teach us how to know her care for her and protect her. And then the, her image is socialized through dynamics with the teachers. And then the teachers do that with their classroom, with the kids. So everyone is aware that she's in and they are celebrating that. 
that they have life as their colleague and as a teacher, you know, life herself. And then the next step is developing her classroom, symbolizes a little piece of the planet, and the kids lead the process of creating, making that planet better with Mother Nature or Mother Earth as a guide and as an ally. And they do things there that are good for them, for others, and for nature. For example, they plant the flowers that they like, or they plant flowers too for, for hummingbirds, or medicinal plants to help their grandpas, or something they like to eat and it's good for their body. And, and they, they put a little place for, for birds to, to drink water. It's not just a little garden there. No, no, no. It has bigger weight now. And then the teachers use that place to, you know, do math, uh, science, language, whatever. But they always ask themselves before going to that place, they have to be sure that whatever they're going to teach there, they have to know that whatever they're going to teach there, how is that going to help kids contribute to make a better world for them, others, and nature? So they have to, in the lesson plan, they have to be sure that they know that. And at the end of it, if the kids, when they ask the kids, okay, how, how did what I just taught you help you make a better world? And the kids, if they say it all well, that's, that's a goal. If they cannot say, they don't relate what they've been taught to, to a purpose, then the teacher has to improve his teaching. And the end is to empower kids and train them to be uh, agents of change to make a better world. So this Mother Earth classroom helps that. And to end, the last thing is that this is the most critical thing is that in the, in the school schedule, there's one hour a week that the kids have time alone, alone in this place, alone. So the idea is that the teacher can be in his or her chair, you know, like next to them, but kids go in there and spend a joyful hour of just taking their shoes out. They put their feet in the ground and they, they self-direct their lessons and they, they decide what they're going to do that is good for them, for others and for nature. Joaquin describes how a teeny approach in an urban space can be developed, in line with Luis' ideas about what teachers can do when they have little nature around the school. In Lima, there is this school that 250 kids, and, and it was all concrete. And uh, with the headmaster and the kids, they decided to take six meters out and, and, and leave a piece of uh, soil there. And then the kids participated, you know, with their little hammer and, and uh, at a point and, and their goggles. And they took a little rock and, and they expressed what they felt. And then they, they developed that area and they created like a mother's classroom. And, and once they, they, they planted 10, 10, 10 species of plants. And after certain months, they discovered that there were 12. And they were like, what's going on? Who planted the other two? And then once they saw a little squirrel going around the school that never they have seen before there, because there was a little green space there, and then squirrel coming down, and they say, oh, the squirrel did it, you know? And they were like so in awe and so in, in joy, and that's exactly mothers teaching them active empathy for life, to love life and to do something about her, you know, to protect her and care for her. So that's a good example. And teachers were not involved in that. The approach that Joaquin describes has impacted different countries in Latin America, with nature officially recognized as a teacher by ministries in places like Peru, the island of Rapa Nui, Chile, Ecuador, and Colombia. I asked Joaquin what's next. Joaquin shares where these initiatives are leading to and his future plans for greater global impact. 
we have been doing that. And, and today we can say, thanks to the work of Children and Nature Network with all the science-based studies, that we have like a, like a antidote against apathy and environmental degradation. It's time to distribute this and adapt it to different countries. And it's already happening, but we want to catalyze that because the science say that we have until 230 to shift towards where we're going with humanity. And so I, I have moved to Costa Rica. We're going to create in Guanacaste, the global center for Mother Earth as a teacher. And we're going to install infrastructure and to, for anyone that wants to learn about this so they can come. So the idea is to work on ground level with teachers, with education experts to take this to their countries, adapt it and work too at a policy level that ministries start recognizing mothers as a teacher. So this will facilitate their work from, from bottom up. We move now to East Canada, where we meet Jeff Barrett. Jeff is a landscape architect and an adventurer, an outdoor teacher who has traveled the world. After noticing how long it took his own children to engage with nature, he founded a very special school that he conceived in the middle of the forest. The first time that I talked to Jeff, he's about to go for a ski race with the students, which sounds very cool. I have trouble with my connection, but Jeff is incredibly patient and waits for me for a long time. To begin, Jeff describes the Blue Mountain Wild School. So the vision of, of Wild School was to basically take a school and turn it inside out. So in, instead of walking through a hallway, you're walking through a forest and each of the classrooms are little pods in a forest. We do have built infrastructure, but then we've also got outdoor classrooms, which are essentially tents and, and sails and tarps over top of, of outdoor areas. And the students are in there as much as they can be until basically they can't use their fingers to write or hold a pencil. Uh, and then uh, to, to heated space. So what we found is what works the best is the ability to have a unit in the forest and then an outdoor classroom right beside it so that the, the class can kind of come in and out as much as they can. So that's sort of the, the, the bricks and mortar. But if you walk through the campus, I think what you'll really see and hear is, is joy. The children just are having a ton of fun and there's laughter and there's excitement and there's play. And I, and I think a lot of that is the environment. They just love it. They love being in this place. Jeff explains that this school follows the Ontario provincial curriculum which is very interesting because it lays out the objectives, but doesn't dictate a pathway on how to achieve them. So to achieve these objectives, this school uses what they call a living curriculum, which means that the teachers can pivot and adapt their practices according to what is happening around them. You know, anything that's dynamic, like interests of students, or like, you know, the salmon are running, or, you know, there's an incredible uh, monarch migration occurring and we've got a bunch of monarch butterflies in like why wouldn't you pivot and quickly adapt and bring that into your curriculum if you see that students interest that to me that just seems like common sense so our curriculum is obviously because we're immersed in nature is very focused on nature and 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 biology and environmental sciences thinking about what Luis said about the need for evidence to prove that a more nature-centered education leads to better learning outcomes I asked Jeff about the evidence around this approach. We are exceeding the benchmarks of the Ontario curriculum. We're doing quite a bit of standardized testing. While we do less amounts of time in it, we get better results, which is, I think, the most mind-blowing thing that's happening here is that our students are able to digest information faster and retain it longer. 
than their counterparts. This hasn't been proven out, but we're in the midst of proving it. We're, we're, it's being demonstrated through testing, but obviously there's a lot of areas where you, know, you need to create more of a control group in order to truly pull that research out. But another really interesting thing would be looking at it from a biological perspective and looking at something like cortisone levels, you know, or something that you could measure within the brain that's showing that in that environment, you're reducing stress, you're reducing anxiety so that the brain is in a better state where it, it can learn better. Yeah, I think that's ultimately what's happening is that we put our we put our children into a state that their brains are very receptive and they become essentially a sponge of knowledge. And, and, and I guess one of the problems is that we do it in a variety of different ways. But obviously being in an area where you have nature as your classroom, there's a tremendous amount of opportunities for learning and engaging, especially in problem solving. So I think that's the big one. And, and the research supports this as well, is that nature-based schools are able to create better learning opportunities for problem solving. And WILD stands for Wilderness Integrated Leadership Development. And it's, and it's really that idea that, that nature is the best teacher. I am fascinated that the idea that nature is the best teacher comes up with all the people devoted to nature-based education that I have spoken to, including Sal, who we will hear from later. I asked Jeff to describe how the projects that emerge from this idea are developed in this school while teaching all that needs to be taught according to the Ontario official benchmarks. So I, I guess the one, one example I use a lot is we did a whole lesson on engineering and we were looking at uh, mechanical advantage and what are some of the forces that are at work and how does that relate to, to math. And then we did a whole presentation on bridge building and, and showing mechanical advantage in famous bridges around the world. And then we did another class, we were learning bushcraft. So, you know, everything from fire building to how to chop a tree down, but more on the uh, skills base. So they were learning lashing and how to build tripods based on lashing techniques. And so then the challenge was to go and build a bridge. Bridge had to be a certain height and it had to be a certain distance. And so the thematic would be bridge and all these different lessons come from the bridge. You've got math, you've got history of architecture, you've got science, you've got engineering. There was a whole writing assignment on it. They had to do a scientific method on crossing the river. And then they went out and built the bridge. And then there was a significant amount of debrief on that because a lot of the lessons of some of these exercises, yes, there's the academics, but it was the group dynamics of how did they plan out their project? What was working? What didn't work? What about the execution? How did you work together with the team? So they're learning a lot in the experience of actually being in nature and coming up with a solution to a problem. How do we get across this river? The, the older students were physically out with axes and saws building a bridge. The younger students were crossing a creek and they were, you know, just kind of pulling stuff that they found on the ground and were, and were just crossing a bridge at, you know, at the kindergarten level. So they were just playing where the older ones were out with measuring tape and their clipboards and they had their hypothesis down and they were, you know, taking observations and it was more of a science lesson where the older, the younger kids was a play-based exercise. Jeff says collaboration between students of different ages is also key. You know, we did a whole program a couple of weeks ago. We had to build a, a luge. So they were looking, the older kids were looking at, you know, mapping out and trying to predict kind of speed and velocity in, in coming down a hill. The younger kids were playing around with drawing and taking a drawing and putting it into building it on a scale model in the snow. So there you've got, you've got nature, you've got outdoor, you've got physicality, you've got, you know, a brain problem in math and they're having fun doing it. 
and you know, and they're doing two things at the same time. So from a brain development perspective, phenomenal, right? You're thinking while moving, which is awesome and healthy. And then we do a lot of stuff where we'll get the older kids to help the, the younger kids. We did a project where they had, we were teaching how to teach and the different styles of teaching to the older students. They had to find a craft or a, a bushcraft of a skill, learn that skill. And then they took the little ones the next day and then had to teach them that skill. So the little ones get to be around the bigger kids and are learning something interesting and, and being in that environment and seeing the older students and the older students are learning how to teach, which is a really important skill. Before we leave Canada and the Blue Mountain Wild School to visit Salim Bali, let's hear how Jeff summarizes the interesting work of this unique school. The environment that we've created really lends to a sense of fun and playfulness. And, you know, it's, it's connected directly uh, on many fronts to nature. And as we're learning, nature is an incredible force for a lot of uh, elements in terms of brain development and happiness. And so our big focus really at the school, if, you, if I was going to whittle it down to two things, would be on brain development and developing sustainable happiness. Thank you to Jeff in Canada. Now we move to our final guest. Sal Gordon is the principal of Green School, a private international school in the jungles of Bali. Over its 14 years of existence, this school has developed a school based on a community of learners that seek to make our world sustainable. Sal welcomes us to the Green School campus at the end of the school day. Coming to you live from the jungles of Bali. It's um, three, nearly three o'clock here, so I've got a school that's been uh, having a lot of fun today and they're just about all to go home, so it's getting a little bit noisy where I am. Yeah, you've got a lot of background noise at Green School Bali, a school with no walls. Yeah. It is a beautiful campus. It is nestled up beside a river. We have a lot of gardens, a lot of jungle. Um, we've got open classrooms that are all beautiful, sustainably designed bamboo buildings. Our campus isn't really sort of the border of our school either. We do a lot of service learning, a lot of learning outside in the community. We've done a lot of work proving to everyone that you can do school differently and Green School Bali's has developed a new model and it's quite an exciting time to be here. Sal explains that the exciting process of designing a new model of school has come with challenges. Everything did start making more sense to us when we define our pedagogy, the how we teach here. That's really what you're talking about in terms of how teachers create learning experiences. We want our learning experiences to be real, so everything that we create needs to be reflective of the real world and of the real challenges in, in, in our world. But real actually stands for four important components of how we teach here. And the first, the R stands for relationships. We believe that all learning experiences are built on building relationships. So it's relationships between peers, between teachers, between outside education, relationships inside an individual to their learning, uh, a relationship to the community, a relationship to having an impact with your learning. So we start by building relationships of all types. The E stands for experiential and evolving, but we believe that learners learn best through doing things and actually doing real learning, hands-on learning, project-based learning, activating their learning now rather than just learning for a, a, an exam. And so our teachers go from building relationships to creating an experience. The A stands for authentic. Okay, so these experiences that we create need to be authentically interconnected to the real world. We, we've thrown away the book on a lot of the old curriculum and we decide, we've decided that 
uh, sustainability issues and particularly nature-based issues are the most authentic real-world learning experiences that we can create. So we've got relationships, we've got experiences that need to be authentic and that last L, the last letter in real, stands for local to global, where our learning can start local but have a global effect. Sal talks about the role that nature plays in this pedagogic model. There seems to be a growing disconnect between humans and the natural environment. And, and I firmly believe that reconnecting humans of all ages is a first step in a sustainable future. So for us, that means spending as much time in nature as possible so that not only we're learning in nature, but learning for nature. We know that people are healthier when they are outside. People are more relaxed when they're outside. People, it's physiologically proven that just being in nature is good for us as humans. Having nature as as part of our campus, as part of like as nature, as part of our, as our teacher, is one of the most important things we do at Green School Bali. Sal describes how this school promotes the connection of its students with nature from the early years. I know that connecting with nature works for learners of different ages and we always have to be mindful of the environmental stages of readiness. For example, we know that our youngest learners really in our early years and lower primary, we just provide every possible opportunity for them to connect and be in awe and wonder at this beautiful natural environment that, that surrounds us. Uh, once you create that, that natural awe and wonder, then you know that people as they grow up, the adults of the future are going to want to protect that. And, and so as, as students get older, that uh, connection with nature is, is strengthened and, and that relationship you build with nature is, is ghost gets to a point where they get to middle school and they're like, well, uh, we're not happy with how the oceans are being treated, for example, So we want to do something about it. And so they start organizing learning experiences that they can give to the community that have a positive impact on the environment. We at Green School Bali, no walls, gardens everywhere, integrated units, thematic units, project-based learning. It's happening all the time here. But the, one of the most important facets of that is that nature is a constant in our life at Green School. And I think nature needs to be a constant in our life, just in the world in general. I asked Sal for examples of this school project-based learning. There's specific examples. I could talk about our Seeds to Table program where our students learn where their food comes from and the impact in their life. We've got ocean programs, almost like a blue curriculum at the Green School, which allows students to, to learn, not just learn about the ocean and about ocean-related issues, but to have impact with their learning and to try and make the world more sustainable in oceans. Sal says that there is a difference between educating about sustainability and education for sustainability. He talks about the school's program called Seats to Table to illustrate this. And we see our relationship with food in general across societies as being sort of deteriorating over the past 10, 20 years. And so our students spend a lot of time in the garden They go from the garden to the kitchen. And the next evolution of that is for our students have actually turned one of our sort of empty eating places into a student-led business that is um, entirely designed by students, run by students. They have chefs, they have accountants, they have waiters, they have a whole business strategy around eating sustainably. So rather than just garden and then cook, they've actually gone the next step and going, well, how does this work in the real world? Could we 
create an understanding of seed to table and make it financially viable? Uh, can we organize things? Can we make it tasty? Uh, is, it, is, it, is it appealing, the food, to, to school-age kids? Sal is very fond of sharing stories as he believes in the power of relationships. He's happy that our podcast connects educators and schools around the world who also believe that important changes in education need to be with nature and for nature. I believe, we believe here at Green School Bali that schools should be places that have a positive impact on our planet and move us towards a sustainable future rather than being just some side conveyor belt that disconnects everyone from the real world for the first 18 years of their life and then pushes them back into the real world. So like we're like a 14-year-old school, so we're like teenage, early teenage year and as normal early, early teenagers, we're starting to be confident in our own views Uh, started to express our own views and really wanting to share what I want to achieve here can't be achieved by a single school. I want mass change in education. We need it to be based on nature and a sustainable future. And that can't just happen with one school in Bali. There are so many awesome schools out there doing amazing things. And the more that we get to share and collaborate and learn from other schools and other professionals, the better our program and I think the more achievable a sustainable future is. I would like to come back to the idea to instill a love of nature, to reconnect to nature and to ourselves, because we are nature. Here's Sal again. If you can create awe and wonder, which isn't really that hard when you think about how awesome the natural environment is, then we know that we'll have a future generation that want to protect it. This is in line with Joaquin's view that creating the conditions for awe and joy in nature seems key for children to thrive and to develop empathy and compassion. I would like to close this episode by hearing from Luis again. He explains the need to engage the body, mind and senses when connecting with nature for learning and development. We have discovered in my work precisely that part of the shift toward nature-based education was integrating you know, different components. So the first one, obviously, is knowledge and what we call knowledge of the visible. So we need to learn about what we have around us, understand it. And maybe that's where schools many times stop. But beyond that, we need to engage with the body, the senses, you know, our five physical senses, but also our intuition, our capacity to sense the invisible. And that that is only attained in direct contact with natural systems where you're sensing, you're feeling, and you're allowing yourself to connect deeply. And ultimately, You know, the third thing is your emotional learning. You know, how your emotions, feelings are actually processing, interpreting, and giving significance to what your senses are telling you, to what your knowledge knows. So connecting mind, body, heart in an integral way and using nature to create what we call windows of opportunity, which is really those moments in nature where magic happens. And this, this happens all every day. Every day there's a sunrise that is incredible. Every, every day there's sunsets, there's birds, hummingbirds feeding in flowers, there's squirrels running and, and playing with each other. And once we connect, you know, knowledge, senses, and emotions with these magical, you know, windows of opportunity, we can actually accelerate the process to come into realizations and realizations that we are nature. Thanks to Luis, Joaquin, Jeff, and Sal for sharing their expertise and unique insights. 
This episode has made me reflect on how important my own connection with nature was as I was growing up. When I think about my childhood, my best memories are framed in outdoor landscapes, like playing houses with my siblings and cousins in the meadows where we used to spend the summers. This episode has also made me think about my own need to feel more connected with nature and to use this connection to inspire my work in education and development. I hope this episode has also made you think about your own connection with nature. I believe reconnecting with nature is key for all of us. Building a more sustainable future necessarily means restoring the crucial role of nature for learning and well-being in educational practices and systems. If you have enjoyed this episode, you can find more about our guests and about the Organization for Environmental Education and Protection, the Tini Methodology, Blue Mountain Wild School and Green School Valley in bold.expert and in the show notes. I would also like to recommend you the Coconut Thinking podcast, as it brings together educational provocateurs who are rethinking school as a concept and space. This episode is the last full episode of the second series of Teachers' Voices, but for me, it's just the start of an important conversation that I would like to develop further in the third series of Teachers' Voices, coming soon. So don't forget to follow us and engage with us in this conversation. Send in your feedback and suggestions by email, podcastteachersvoices at gmail.com or on social media. To close the second series of Teachers' Voices, we still have a mini-sode in two weeks. It will be a short but practical episode that will feature tips, tools and other sources of inspiration shared by collaborators. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to Teachers' Voices, produced in partnership with Bolt, the digital platform for learning and development. Let's keep on building sustainable learning communities while bridging research and practice. <laughs>